Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where anything goes. <laughs> we do suggest parental guidance as we take a nostalgic look back at all the family-friendly feature films you watched as a child that feature blood drinking, beheadings, child slavery, kids being punched and burned, humans being ripped apart by wild crocodiles, heavy sexual innuendo, and still beating hearts ripped out of human chests in the most graphic way. You know, for kids. <laughs> you know, sit your eight or nine-year-old down to watch that. On second thought, perhaps we should strongly caution parents. <laughs> I'm Chris, the podcast host who's going home to Missouri where they never feed you to snakes before ripping your heart out and lowering you into a hot pit. This is not my idea of a swell time. <laughs> I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to hate the water, and I hate being wet, and I hate you. <laughs> I wasn't going to go that deep. That shook the room. It shook the room. And I am Seth. The host most likely to have a lot of fond memories of that dog. <laughs> in our last episode, we successfully located the Ark of the Covenant and put it in storage where it apparently belongs. However, we still have some Sankara stones and a Holy Grail to locate before our work is done. Today, we are discussing the sequels to 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark, which we discussed in our last episode, 1984's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, both also directed by Steven Spielberg. So, off we go. Please keep your hands inside the cart and your hearts inside your chests at all times. <laughs> Back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning Cause we both be cynical and radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Did we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're cheated and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a magazine or will it be fun? A decades later will it still hold up? And this is when we were young When we were young Indiana Jones is back again, and we are back again, and I am back again with another scintillating opening question <laughs> to provoke us before we get into our main discussion of the Indiana Jones sequels. In honor of Snake Surprise and Chilled Monkey Brains, <laughs> what foods grossed you out when you were young? Oh, this I have off the top of my head. I thought mac and cheese was disgusting. What? What? I would have butter with noodles. <laughs> <laughs> now that sounds disgusting no it, no that's great but why i just thought it was gross i didn't like any cheese unless it was on a pizza no cheese and then <laughs> i remember in preschool we were supposed to do finger painting with cheese no i forget if it was like pudding or like it was something edible ew it was something edible because kids put their fingers in their mouths. But I wouldn't touch it because it was gross. So I remember refusing to do it. They would serve mac and cheese as lunch and they knew that I would not eat it. And so they had to give me noodles with butter. Or really butter with noodles. <laughs> so anything gross like that, like egg salad, chicken salad. Like I, I'll eat chicken salad these days, but when I was a kid, no. Like anything like mushy was a no-go at all. I was a very picky eater growing up. And I think part of that might have been just me. And part of that might be my mom just gave me the same same stuff like my diet was french fries hamburgers no cheese and hot dogs and like snacks wow oh wow strangely enough because my dad owned a deli and this we, we just had a lot of this food i also ate herring and whitefish <laughs> <laughs> 
but nothing slimy. Yeah, weird. It's very strange, but no vegetables. (laughs) I'd eat like some fruit. I was just such a picky eater and it all changed when I went to weight loss camp and I like either would starve or I would have to eat what they gave me. No butter with noodles at weight loss camp? Well, like I've never had a taco before and then I had to eat it. But like, you know what? I didn't really eat it. I would eat it like separately because I didn't want the whole thing. Like sometimes I would starve (laughs) because I was very stubborn in what I would allow in my body. So that changed a lot later. (laughs) (laughs) Was Chuck E. Cheese a nightmare place for you? No, I liked pizza. Yeah. So you liked cheese on on one thing that was made primarily of flour. I guess. I guess I would eat cheese, too. you didn't want cheese on multiple things that were made of flour. Maybe it's the mushiness. No, honestly, everything that you've said so far makes it sound like it was specifically a textural thing. Yeah, that was probably it. And about mush. Toasted cheese was okay. I guess so. Did you ever eat oatmeal growing up? No. No. Okay, what about, like, pudding or yogurt? No. Interesting. What about oh. shelled monkey brains? <laughs> yeah, every day. <laughs> that is fascinating. Yeah, it, it was a long road to my fine dining. <laughs> yeah, I there was a lot I didn't eat. And do you think of any memories or things that changed that, that helped you change your mind on that? Having to go to camp and, okay. and I would starve. I mean, a taco isn't even that bad, but, like, just because I hadn't had it, like, it was weird to me. Okay. You know, I remember my when my dad pretty much made me eat mushrooms. I was at a semi-nice restaurant with just him and he ordered like a mushroom appetizer and he made me eat it and I liked it. So it was just slow over the course of time. I remember I would eat sushi at USC, like the commissary, <laughs> but I didn't like the fact that there was seaweed surrounding sushi. So I would unravel it. <laughs> eat the fake crab and the rice separate. And then that changed when my sister came to visit and she lived in Japan. I went out with her and her friends to a sushi restaurant and I was like, I can't make an ass out of myself here. <laughs> so shame. Shame is what. Yeah, it's primarily shame based. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. yeah. Great motivator. Honestly, I have a hard time thinking of foods that grossed me out. I was lucky enough to grow up in New Orleans. So I was in like one of the best food cities on earth. Also a huge town for seafood. So like I basically got most of the grossest foods (laughs) and mushiest foods um, (laughs) as just part of the cuisine and part of my part of the diets of the you know the people I was growing up with probably the grossest one would have been oysters and fresh oysters are very much a delicacy in New Orleans I mean not not just in New Orleans Wait, you were eating oysters as like a little kid no <laughs> okay that's one that you wouldn't eat Okay. That is kind of the only one that I wouldn't eat that and that was like really kind of grossed me out to see and to imagine people eating and to see people eating. My dad loved raw oysters and would love to like order them by the dozen, you know, and you get like cocktail sauce and like uh, lemon wedges that go with that. And also a lot of times in New Orleans, they serve it with saltine crackers, you know, again, texturally to kind of like mm-hmm. add a bit of texture to that. But it is innately a very slimy food, a very viscous thing to eat. From a very young age, though, especially around, I think around, started like around 11 or 12, I really started to get into fried oysters. In New Orleans, they fry all kinds of seafood. And that, of course, is a transformative thing to fish or crustaceans or what have you. I really loved fried oysters. And especially like in New Orleans, they do a po'boy, which is like a sandwich. And fried oyster po'boys were like a big thing for me 
starting like just before I was a teenager. And I was generally not afraid of any particular textures or tastes in food. I was really, really curious about all kinds of food from a super, super young age. And thankfully, my parents would indulge me a lot in that and be willing to get new weird things at restaurants for me to try that they had never heard of. So yeah, in my experience of childhood, there were very few foods that grossed me out. And that remains pretty much to this day. Even even that description of oysters, I had to sit through that description of oysters, which was difficult for me. Listeners, you can't see him squirming, but he's still squirming. Yeah. So for me, the answer is fruits and vegetables at large. I would not really eat any of them as a kid. Aren't you still like that? Not as bad, though, because there are some that I will eat. But it's true that it still feels weird for me to eat a lot of those things, even if they technically taste fine to me. I still have a psychological block where my brain just says, like, you don't eat this. Like, this is not food to you. So, yeah, there were very few vegetables that I would eat as a kid. Almost none. Basically, potatoes, if you count those, corn, and I could be forced to eat peas. All starches. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No fruits at all. That is the strange thing to me. Although I have friends nowadays that are just like that. Living without fruits makes less sense to me than not wanting a vegetable. Well, but you, like when you were talking about yours, you were saying things that were squishy and these are, fruits Mm. are squishy. And that was what bothered Mm. me about them. And they also feel kind of alive and it feels strange to me. Yes. Like I'm reminded they're in the same form that they are when they grow, I guess. And, And like they're not cooked, you know, I mean, you can cook vegetables vegetables sometimes but they just they feel too like raw and it's like like eating just something that you found on a tree somewhere so what about like roasted vegetables or grilled vegetables are you more comfortable with that i don't like the taste of a lot of them some some i do but in general no i mean I'll, i'll try them but they just they have like a distinct taste to me to mostly that just feels like don't eat this like I, something like triggers my brain wow. and it's just like if i were to eat plastic your brain would be like oh this isn't food spit it out you know it's kind of i have to fight that kind of instinct just because i have this and i i don't know where it came from because yeah that's the thing so like becky and i have known this about you for a very long time and i've been curious about it so you don't know any of the origin points No, not really, but it is kind of pervasive in certain parts of my family, like like my uncle is a very, very, like much more so than I am. And I think there are certain other members of my family that are, but like, like my dad isn't like that. My mom isn't really like that either. I mean, she's a little, you know, like my dad will kind of eat anything. My mom has certain things she doesn't like, but she doesn't rule out whole categories of things. I don't know where it really came from. When you're a baby, obviously you eat a lot of like mush and most of that is vegetables and fruits. And so I don't know at what point. Well, it sounds like you're not like a super t- which is people that like have a strawberry and it's like way too sweet. No. Like it doesn't taste good to them. No. It sounds like it's this other thing. It's almost like your brain's telling you it's not food. Right. Yeah. I can have like fruit juice that tastes exactly like a lot of these things. And there's only a few of those that I don't like, but like a lot of them I do. I mean, I do like test myself and and I will eat things. I have tried a lot of things. It doesn't feel natural to me. Like I will rarely buy fruit at a a grocery store or something just because I know like I'll kind of avoid it because Mm -hmm. I'm just used to like not not seeing it as food. And I I won't be like, oh, that sounds like a good snack because Mm -hmm. it just doesn't come naturally to me. Have there been times 
happens when that feeling or that response subsides and you're presented with one of those foods in a dish that you wouldn't normally eat? Like, do you ever just not have that reaction? Not really. I mean, I can kind of force myself to eat certain things that don't taste bad to me, like roasted carrots. Those taste good to me. They're they're fine. But I still always have a bit of an aversion to them, even if I will eat them. It's like, I can't really go into it without thinking. I have to be like, okay, you're eating these carrots. (laughs) Even if they're good. You have to consciously do it. I would kind of naturally just like leave them aside because I just don't see them as like... This is food for me. Okay, I get it. And and when you're eating them and like when you're able to override that response, does any of that kind of linger with you as you eat it or does it kind of like get dispelled by the act of you like defying that built-in reaction in your brain. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I do it enough, like, I was eating a lot of, like, prepared meals this year, and, Mm -hmm. like, half of them at least came with green beans or something. So it became pretty normal for me to eat those, and I like those pretty well, so it's not difficult for me to eat those. But I also probably wouldn't prepare them for myself. They're fine, but they're not like, oh, this is delicious, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, things that I actually like are. They're just sort of, like, tolerable. How annoyed were your parents growing up? (laughs) (laughs) Like, did they make you eat stuff? Yes, but only, like, from the small category of things. Like, they would make me eat the peas, but then they wouldn't, like, test me on, like, Brussels sprouts or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, there were certain things that were, like, a hard no. And then there was the, like, I would prefer not to eat these peas. And then they would make me eat the peas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes my, my daughter, who's four, is one day she's tasting everything and she's being very adventurous and then the next day she's like I don't want it and then I like I don't want to force her to finish her plate but I'm just like have two more bites of broccoli and then you can be excused like I try to like get her to take some bites because I'm like you need some nutrition it can't just be candy but I don't know what the answer is I feel like if I had a person with aversions as a kid I'd be very frustrated as a parent just because I want my kid to be healthy and get nutrition yeah and in terms of like being really grossed out I remain grossed out by tomatoes I don't know why but they like really bother me but you like tomato sauce yes so it's it's but not ketchup no i like ketchup oh you do it's like you like a lot of those fruits and vegetables once they've been processed in some way and like even juice is processing it mostly in the form of adding sugar to it um have you had a bloody mary Yes, I don't like it. There's, okay. I really don't like the taste of tomato. So if it, like, I don't think marinara sauce tastes like a pure tomato. Oh, it, yeah. it does. I mean, it's a concentrated version of the flavor. And of course, you know, it's hard to know what your formative experiences were tasting those foods. You know, because you might have had like a really crappy tomato. Like 99% of tomatoes in grocery stores are shitty tomatoes. Like you got to know which ones to pick. So. My only memories are of avoiding them. I have no memory of actually eating one ever. Maybe they're delicious and you'll you'll never know. I have accidentally had them or like had to have them or like a certain thing will be like sun-dried tomato flavored and I'll eat it and I'll be like, whoa. And, oh. like, have to spit it out. Oh, see, I think sun-dried tomato was such an overdone... It was like a fad, like Pogs, in one moment in the 90s. So, yeah, if so, if you're judging it by sun-dried tomatoes, then I it's, understand. It's all of them. I They're just not for me. In certain forms, I guess they are. Give but. me all your tomatoes. I eat them like apples. Right? Ew. <laughs> all of our tastes change over time. And you've definitely, yeah. like, expanded your food horizons in a lot of ways, even compared to when we lived together. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's always really interesting to talk to people who have 
kind of limitations in their diets. And because a lot of them know exactly where they came from, they can like pinpoint it either to a specific experience, you know, even putting aside like food allergies, like I'm allergic to beets. So like I I can't eat beets. They're disgusting to me, but that's because I can't physically eat them and digest them. But it's always interesting to hear people's stories of those. Well, I'd rather eat a beetle than a tomato. Yeah. Wow. So the Indiana Jones films are always intended to be a series that would follow the character on all kinds of exotic adventures. So a sequel was a no-brainer after the success of Raiders. Some of Lucas's early ideas for the sequel were a haunted castle in Scotland, the Chinese legend of the Monkey King, a monkey born from stone who obtains supernatural powers, and a lost <laughs> world of dinosaurs discovered along the Great Wall of China. The first idea, uh, the c- castle in Scotland, was nixed because Spielberg had already done Poltergeist. And mm. the latter, too, because mm. China would not let them film there. And those were the only reasons they didn't do those wonderful ideas. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> those torpedoed their winner ideas. <laughs> also, they sucked. <laughs> George Lucas did come up with the eventual storyline for the film. Uh, set in India, involving child slavery and human sacrifice, yeah. inspired in part by the stories of Rudyard Kipling and films like Gunga Din. The temple in the film's title was originally titled The Temple of Death. Lawrence Kasdan declined to return to the sequel because he hated the storyline, finding it mean-spirited and ugly. So Lucas turned to Gloria Katz and Willard Hyuk. Not sure how to say Excuse anything. Excuse me? <laughs> Yuck. That's how it's spelled. <laughs> Old-timey giggle for a name. <laughs> Thanks, Goofy. The team that had previously delivered the script for American Graffiti and would later collaborate again for Lucas on Howard the Duck. Oh boy, bunch of winners. I mean, American Graffiti is a good script, I think. <laughs> to match Indiana, named after Lucas's dog, the character of Willie Scott was named after Spielberg's Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> this is just a big in-joke for them. Honestly, this whole thing... <laughs> It's a fucking nerd's gambit of jokes, like in jokes between friends. And a short round was also a George Lucas dog. Ah, short uh, round? The Shanghai sequence and subsequent plane escape and the minecart chase were recycled ideas from the original Raiders script that did not make the finished film. As writing went on, Spielberg started making comments that he might just co-produce the film, so Lucas asked the writers to hurry up so they didn't lose him. Sharon Stone was among the top three contenders for the role of Willie. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. I mean, I could totally see it. Yeah. I could so see that movie. She would be married to Spielberg now. <laughs> if only. <laughs> Kate Capshaw was just starting as an actress after having been a teacher for two years following her earning of a master's degree in learning disabilities. She says it was hard to find a good audition scene because her character is usually just screaming and that her character was referred to simply as the girl throughout production. Oh, God. Kihi Kwan accompanied his brother to an open call and was asked to read for the part by the casting director, having never seen Raiders and with no idea that this movie was a sequel. He could not yet read English, so his audition was an improvised card game that ended up being reshot for the film. He looks back fondly on production with everyone staying at the hotel and Harrison Ford teaching him how to swim in the hotel's pool. Oscar winner. Not for this film, though. Not for, well, yeah, no, not for this. Knowing that this film would require Indy to go shirtless, Harrison Ford began working out with personal trainer Jake Steinfield. Thank you, Jake Steinfield. Yeah, good job, Jake. <laughs> body by Jake. That's the name of his company. Did you oh, know that? Oh, that is Body by Jake. <laughs> 
He had like infomercials and stuff yes. when I was when we were kids. Oh, for that's sure. that's yeah, body yeah. by Jake. Okay. The titular Jake. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> he did extensive early morning workouts that had him doing a thousand sit-ups at once, amongst other things. His we services should... were gifted to Spielberg for his birthday in 1983. He nicknamed Spielberg Wheels and put him through the same workout. Afterwards, Spielberg called him and said, I had a lot of fun, but I can't move my body. Should I go to the hospital? <laughs> The Indian government read the script and refused to allow production in the country, so the film was shot in Sri Lanka instead. Sri Lanka's like, come on, bye! (laughs) We're not offended by anything. They just love getting one over on India. Harrison Ford severely injured his back riding elephants for the film, forcing him to leave the country for treatment. So Steven Spielberg managed to shoot with stunt double Vic Armstrong, replacing Ford for five weeks of the production. What? Yeah, five weeks of the movie were shot without Harrison Ford. So they just filmed all the stuff where he would need a stunt double anyway? Yeah, there was a particular fight scene that they spent a lot of time or on. Or like right. every shot where he was turned around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Little boy escaped from the evil palace. Many other children still there. What we do, Dr. Jones? What do you think? I think that somebody believes the good luck rock from this village is one of the lost Shankara stones. What is Shankara? Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom stars Harrison Ford again as Indiana Jones, Kate Capshaw as squeamish showgirl Willie Scott, Kihi Kwan as sidekick Short Round, and Amrish Puri as Mola Ram, the evil priest. It takes place in 1935, one year before Raiders, and concerns Indy's quest to retrieve a sacred stone in India and rescue a village's lost children. The film opened in theaters May 23rd, 1984. We've mentioned 1984 before. There's a crazy amount of influential movies that came out. But if you went to the movies over Labor Day that summer, you could see Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters, The Karate Kid, or Gremlins. Wow. All of which we've covered on the podcast. Indeed. And later that month, a really important thing happened, which was my birth. Well, you couldn't see that on the big screen. (laughs) I'm going to bring it back to theater someday. <laughs> Director's cut. <laughs> yeah, we filmed it in 35 millimeter. Nostalgia's big right now. It's an origin story. <laughs> Jesus. So I'm going to start reading a review. See if you can guess who wrote it. Director Steven Spielberg is like a magician whose tricks are so daring they make you laugh. He creates an atmosphere of happy disbelief. The more breathtaking and exhilarating the stunts are, the funnier they are. Nobody has ever fused thrills and laughter in quite the way he does here. In its own very different way, Indiana Jones stands in relation to Raiders of the Lost Ark as The Godfather Part 2 stands to The Godfather. I don't know, Ebert? Gene Shalit? Pauline Kael. No. Wow. She changed her mind. She panned the first movie as we read in the last episode, but she was a big fan of this movie. She like compared it to The Godfather Part (laughs) 2. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I was stunned by that. But to read some less presto change of reviews. (laughs) Perhaps less effusive. Roger Ebert said, Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is one of the greatest bruised forearm movies ever made. You know what a bruised forearm movie is. That's the kind of movie where your date is always grabbing your forearm Hmm. in a vice-like grip as unbearable excitement unfolds on screen. After the movie is over, you've had a great time, but your arm is black and blue for a week. 
This is the most cheerfully exciting, bizarre, goofy, romantic adventure since Raiders, and it is high praise to say that it's not so much a sequel as an equal. On the more negative end of the spectrum, the Washington Post's Rita Kempley. <laughs> We're back on the Rita Beat? Back on the Rita Beat, back on the Rita Beat, back on the Rita Beat! I'm being paid for this, correct? Said Temple is for Barbarians, a brutal disappointment for Easy Indies fans. Collaborators George Lucas and Steven Spielberg missed the arc and the boat. <laughs> it's hard to top a formula that works like Raiders did. Spielberg and Lucas tried too hard in Temple. It has more complex sense, more technical perfection, and more than a touch of genius. It's fun at both ends, but it's also mean-spirited and corrupt at its core. Unfortunately, Rita Kempley's review really tainted the interest in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> it bombed at the box office and no one ever spoke of Indiana Jones again. I always suspected that Rita had that power. Just kidding. What? Another it, deception. It was another big hit. Uh, Stop lying to us, Chris. Honestly, Chris, this podcast relationship is built on lies. <laughs> Yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> the movie grossed $180 million domestically, $153 million elsewhere for $333 million worldwide. It won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects and lost original score. What are the visual effects in this movie? People being lowered into a fiery hot pit. Is that a visual effect? Like liquid hot magma? Just being lowered into also, a pit? Also the heart ripping parts. They didn't... Oh, that looked... Okay, well... And the whole... <laughs> Like the minecart sequence? That's not a visual effect. That's something yes, else. Yes, it is. I don't think it's Becky. a visual effect. Becky. That's you think? a lot of <laughs> They ripped a heart out of a chest. <laughs> you think that they actually well, I, rode I the minecart? I agree that's cart? a visual effect. I just don't think it's a good one. But, all right. We're talking about their existence, not their quality. <laughs> what is happening? You're like a, a 10-minute minecart chase sequence? I didn't think that's... A, whatever. Let's... let's Keep going. <laughs> the documentary, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. National Geographic presents Indiana oh my Jones and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> the reviews did have a big effect on this movie, however. There were major complaints from parents and moral groups about the film's violence. Paramount put out a warning that the film might be too intense for children. Can we can we be clear? Moral groups means right-wing reactionaries. Yes, yeah. we can be clear. <laughs> it was censored in Britain. People magazine said taking kids to it was a form of child abuse. Spielberg started defending it by saying the film was not called Temple of Roses, but soon agreed that younger children should probably not see it and has distanced himself from it since. A lot of the darkness has been attributed to the moods of Lucas and Spielberg at the time. They were both going through painful breakups. This film, along with Gremlins, is responsible for the creation of the PG-13 rating, which was suggested by Steven Spielberg. To a counterpoint, Seth, I think that if I brought my child into this movie thinking it was PG, I would be like, this is not PG. <laughs> this is much darker. And like at the time, it's not like there was Reddit threads where you could ask more information. Like all you had was the rating system, I think, at that time. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about the legitimacy of the rating system to begin with that we won't have here. <laughs> um, but I roughly get what you're saying, you know, where like there's some movies that are relatively family friendly that you wouldn't want little kids watching. I totally get that. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that if we're going to have a rating system, it's good that they had a, dif a different rating for this kind of movie. Yeah, our idea of PG is really different than what it was at the time because, like, yes. Jaws is PG. And, like, as violent as these movies are, at least it's cartoonish, Jaws is, like, 
Yeah, no, that's... Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, and we did grow up in the context where PG-13 already existed. So part of it is just, like, Mm -hmm. that's the only system we've lived under. Yeah. But, yeah, I think Spielberg was right. Like, let's create something that goes beyond just, Mm -hmm. like, parental guidance suggested as PG, and then parents strongly cautioned as PG-13. Yeah, it has more gradations. So what is your relationship to the sequels of Indiana Jones? We've kind of discussed that a little bit in the last episode, but either reiterate it or just, you know, if you have extra details about these particular films. So Temple of Doom was my Indiana Jones growing up. Temple of Doom is the one that I have seen the most times, bar none. It's the one whose VHS I would pop in if I was, like, bored one afternoon and needed, like, a good time killer. I saw it way more times than any of the other movies. I would definitely say I appreciated this movie and Last Crusade a lot more than I appreciated Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I hadn't rewatched these many times since childhood. Like, I'd seen them kind of once in a while, but I usually wouldn't, like, set out to, like, sit down and rewatch Indiana Jones. But yeah, again, I would just definitely say, like, for me, Temple of Doom was my Indiana Jones, and it was the one, basically, whose every moment was the most instantly recalled for me when I was rewatching it now. Yeah, like I said in the last episode, I barely watched Raiders, but I would spend most of my Indiana Jones watching time watching Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. Mostly Last Crusade. Temple of Doom was a movie I remember watching with my sister a lot. and We would have a lot of fun with it. To me, my memory of watching it was that it was a fun movie. (laughs) Same. Very much the same. Like, it was, like, a fun time. Did either of you perceive it as, like, particularly violent compared to the other ones, like, at the time? Yeah, it it, it felt like an outlier at the time. Just, like, there's very invasive violence versus bang, shoot, or whip, punch. Like, there's a lot of... <laughs> there's a lot of... The diff- worlds of bang, shoot, <laughs> and whip, punch. <laughs> because that's cartoony, and this is definitely cartoony, but this is more like they're reaching to you chest to bleed out your heart very pretty invasive invasive. like it it definitely felt like a different mood yeah i think this was my first body horror (laughs) yeah i think it's definitely body horror i feel like raiders and crusade kind of feel a little bit more equal in tone so that's why if i wanted that kind of tone i went to crusade if i wanted something different i went to doom and raiders got left out in the cold well, I have an anecdote. I had a choice at one point between these three movies. Fuck, Mary kill? <laughs> Close. <laughs> it was buy or don't buy, don't buy. <laughs> I believe this was related to the McDonald's promotion that happened in 1991. These movies were for sale at your local McDonald's. This holiday season, dash on down to McDonald's for your own original Indiana Jones videos. Just $5.99 each with the purchase of any large sandwich all day long. Give the kids stocking stuffers that'll really bowl them over. Get an indie video at your McDonald's today for just $5.99 each. The best price ever with the purchase of any large sandwich any time of day. Collect all three. Just stop by McDonald's and ask for today's video. But hurry, because everyone is going to want one. Thing that happened uh, for $5.99, which is a really good price, even now. $5.99? I thought VHSs were like expensive they then. Were. They were, but McDonald's would have really cheap ones. Literally did not remember until now because I eventually got legit Indiana Jones VHS tapes, and I bet that we got them from McDonald's. 
Yeah, so I think what happened is we probably went to McDonald's and we were allowed to get, like, one, but my family wasn't willing to, you know, like, shell out for the whole set. Mm. I probably wanted them because I liked movies, you know? I don't think I necessarily cared that to own Indiana Jones specifically, but it was just like, oh my god, they're selling movies and I get a hamburger? Sure. <laughs> right. Like, let's do this. I think I was given the choice because maybe my sister was too young. Also, I was just, like, the movie person in the family, so Sophie's choice, I chose Temple of Doom over Raiders. Had you Raiders. seen all yes. the movies? I had seen them all, like I said, at someone else's house. So it was kind of like piecemeal. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily like sit down and start and finish them, but they were on like while I was being babysat by someone else. So I think I picked this because it was the most distinct and I knew exactly which movie it was. The other two I might not have even like been able to distinguish, mm-hmm. like which one was this movie, which one was that movie, but I knew Temple of Doom was the one with... <laughs> hearts being ripped out (laughs) like bridges like it's just a very different movie than the other two so this is the only one i owned and so then it became the only movie that i watched of these three like very regularly and i didn't really watch it that often because it's kind of a weird movie to put on all by itself (laughs) like i feel like when i'm in an in an Indiana Jones mood, I kind of want to watch the whole trilogy because they all offer something a little bit different. So I don't often just like isolate one of the movies to watch. And if I do, it's usually going to be Raiders just because it's like the first one, the most iconic one. I know me and my sister used to make fun of Kate Capshaw screaming in this movie. (laughs) Uh, We had fun doing that. But yeah, that's really my history with this movie. It was just that this one, for better or worse, was the movie I was most familiar with as well. So what did you guys think of Temple of Doom now? Temple of Doom is the showgirls of the Indiana Jones movies. (laughs) With an actual showgirl. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now I want to see her. I want to see Willie Scott in Vegas with Nomi. I mean, it's basically the same character. (laughs) (laughs) You could just drop Nomi in there and it'd be completely the same. Um, (laughs) She'd kick more ass, though. Yeah. In a way, I love this movie because it's a it's a terrible movie. <laughs> and I love it's a terrible insane. movie. It's an insane movie. Okay, I watched this movie a few years ago after not watching it for a very long time. <laughs> I think my husband had never seen it. It was probably during COVID or something. And he was astounded at how bad it was. And I was too because I have fond memories of watching this movie and liking it. And, and I think that when I think of the Indiana Jones trilogy, now there's more, but... The original, I think of a great fun time. Everything's great. No complaints. <laughs> or at least I did. But this movie is insane. How is this second? How is this second in this lineup of three plus? Like, it feels like something that would at least come third because it's so different than Raiders. But I'm just like, how did they go so left with this movie so quickly? Because then the third one is more like Raiders. <laughs> I'm astounded at this movie that it's even where it is. Like, it's just they made Indiana Jones, like, unlikable in this. And also, like, I mean, Willie has absolutely no redeeming characteristics besides being hilarious of how annoying she is it's just so that there's so many triumphant moments of child abuse <laughs> like there's like bah, 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 and i'm like yeah there's like children dying like like i'm just <laughs> with the children very bad acting in some scenes it's just atrocious no depth kind of racist <laughs> 
it's so wackadoo that I like kind of love it now because it's so crazy. It's certainly memorable. So I think that this might be the Indiana Jones movie that I might put on the most going forward because it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like there's even so much more to add to that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I just. I have three pages of notes. <laughs> yeah, how insane this movie is. I I really had no idea how much how many notes I would take relatively for each movie, but this one was absolutely the most benoted for yeah. me. It's crazy to me that this was the one that I watched far and away the most growing up. I'm like, what? how did this influence me? Again, there are like so many specifics of it, but on the whole, it is just so insanely different a movie. It is like a body horror movie in a way, yeah. very much. <laughs> like every one of the most intense action set pieces other than the mind chase is related to body horror of some kind, either... You know, the removal of the hearts or the, like, invasion kind of by voodoo doll. You know, like, people's bodies are taken over in that way, too. Got a lot to say about that voodoo doll. (laughs) Yeah. Again, there's, like, just so much specific stuff to address. But just rewatching it now, like, the character of Willie is horrible. Just a nag. The whiniest character in, like, a ten of whininess. And has no redeeming qualities, like, unlike... Marion, and really unlike all the other female characters in the Indiana Jones movies, Willie in particular is just fucking useless in every situation and in an active hindrance in every single way. I was happy in Shanghai. I think we'll camp here tonight. And it does really nothing to even try to redeem her on those merits. That said, though, because I saw this movie so many damn times, every shot of this was iconic for me. (laughs) Every single moment and sequence felt like it was just playing out in my memories as I rewatched it. Like, I had like total recall of this movie of all things. Yeah, and I mean, I know I've said before that the never-ending story was what made me gay, but really it was the opening dance sequence of this movie. (laughs) Anything goes. Yeah, the anything goes. (laughs) In Chinese. In Chinese, no less, with Willie and like her very much drag queen outfits, sequins for days. Like it's very it's very much a drag performance in a lot of ways. And Becky, like you, I do think that this is gonna be the one that I rewatch the most often. It's bonkers. <laughs> and 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 so crazy that it is fun in a way that I didn't really find Raiders of the Lost Ark to be. I watched all of these movies back in November around when the Fablements came out because I just had a moment where I like felt like reassessing a lot of Spielberg and I hadn't seen these in a while. And I formulated strong opinions about these movies, particularly this one, and wrote kind of a screed against <laughs> Willie Scott in particular in this movie. I think I wrote something like, is she the most annoying female character to ever be in a movie? <laughs> You know, just the most, like, stereotypical bad female character. 
And then I watch, you know, the movies again to do this podcast six months later and got completely different opinions on really? a lot of the movies. Yeah, it's odd. Just, I guess, doing the research on the serials and just kind of the intent of these movies really put them in a different perspective for me, where I think if you look at these as individual movies and kind of judging against like other summer blockbusters, they don't always stand up as well. But when you look at them as trying to do something kind of like goofy and a pastiche of the past, they work a lot better. So like for Willie in particular, like when I kind of started seeing this movie as more of a comedy and just stopped taking it seriously and just kind of looked at it as like, oh, this is trying to entertain us. It's certainly not trying to put up like a role model or say anything like in particular, but it's just this throwback to these kind of goofy old movies, old serials. I mean, those were racist as well. So I feel like this is that doesn't necessarily excuse it, but it's also it's just kind of we're just doing this again and we're not like rethinking it. We're not recontextualizing it. We're not really updating it for the 80s. We're just and not commenting it on it as a form. Right. Either. No, not at all. Yeah, like I totally wrote in my notes that this is the definition of like an homage, like they're trying to make a serial, not comment upon. Yes. They're not parodying it. They're trying to actually make one. Yeah. And I think this one, even more than the first one, feels like that. It feels silly. It feels... It even Poopy. feels in the vein of like the Abin and Costello like travelogue movies where they would like go to far flung distant lands and stuff. Yeah, there's so much like goofy humor in here of like, especially like Willie. It gets to be a little overkill, but like traumatized by animals, traumatized by corpses, you know, like Abba and So is like a great thing because like you can see her just like, she's kind of like mugging for the camera. Oh, yes. No, it's like high camp slapstick. And I get it in context. I just still find her character to be so one note over the top that it's obnoxious. It takes me out of the homage of it. There's so many problems with her and I totally get like when I was watching this I was like okay it's madcap it's supposed to be not true to life it's over the top like in general but she as a character I still feel like does not work because she just complains the entire time she doesn't smile she's not smart she's not clever she's not kind to animals yeah <laughs> like she's just a bitch <laughs> she is like such a that's the and specifically I, like I want to say that especially in retrospect this movie seems like it was geared to make me think that that woman is a bitch and that anything bad that happens to her she deserves I, like seriously and i mean it in those exact terms but like th but then indy likes her by the end of it like he's kind of a dick he's too, a dick in this so too he's they a, deserve but, each other but, but i don't want to see two dicks follow up <laughs> Well, well, you're on the wrong podcast. And, and Chris, the moment that you said this movie was made in the wake of George Lucas's and Steven Spielberg's dramatic, awful breakups, I was like, oh, no shit. That perfectly explains why this movie is so deeply antagonistic toward basically its only female. And it's it's just it's not good. Like I I get okay. It's one thing if she's like a one dimensional like serial dame, but like this yes. does not work. And I think Kate Capshaw is miscast. Like I don't Completely. think she does not act like a woman in the '30s or look like a woman in the '30s. At she all. looks like an idiot in the '80s. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure she's a lovely woman in real life, but in this movie, she just plays a really obnoxious, quote unquote, Karen-y type in the 80s. And I just can't stand her. 
she can like be antagonistic with Indy, but I want her to be funny. I want her to like have yes. quips. I want her to save the day at some point. Like I want there to be a reason why they're attracted to each other, but they're just antagonistic and there's conflict. And I mean, whatever with her and the diamonds, it's so stupid. Like, oh, diamonds, I'm a woman. She like, breaks a nail at a certain point. I know. Like that is such an 80s thing. Oh, like, I think uh, that might have been twice. I think I she hate, referenced her nails that. fucking twice. I hated it. There could have been a way to have her be this showgirl that is antagonistic towards Indy. And then by the end, they team up and they have like mutual respect. And like there could have been a way to do it. And I do not think they succeeded in that. I don't think they even tried. She could have started as shallow, but then like gradually like shown different sides of her personality and like maybe like found some ingenuity or something. Yeah, there are definitely ways. I think like Kate Capshaw gets a really bad rap from this movie, which is partially deserved. But I also think she's doing what was called upon her to do. Like, it's mostly the writing that's the fault. It's not really her performance, although her performance... I think there are some actors who probably could have toned it down a little, and she's doing big. Like, she's she's going for it in every line. Like, the second you said Sharon Stone, I was like, oh, what could have been? Like, I just think she would have been... She would have even looked more like a showgirl. Like, I'm... Like, it's not... A, it's not like I think she's ugly. She just doesn't have, like, this, this glamorous it look to her. She looks like a comedian. She she just she looks, looks like, like a comedian. She just looks like a, a lovely woman, like as opposed to a showgirl who's glitzy and, you know, like like a star, you know, and I just I did not see that in her. Yeah. And I mean, you say that, though, but like, I don't even I don't think Lucas and Spielberg would have directed Sharon Stone to be a any more complex or dramatic. It just I would have felt like at least she was well cast. Like she didn't she just didn't strike to me as even like like. The person she was supposed to play, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I think it is the perfect marriage of uh, not very good script and not very good casting. Yeah. I don't blame you for being sore at me. I can be hard to handle. I've had worse. But you'll never have better. I don't know. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. Why, you conceited ape. I'm not that easy. I'm not that easy either. Trouble with you is Whoopi. You're too used to getting your own way. And you're just too proud to admit that you're crazy about me, Dr. Jones. If you want me, Willie, you know where you can find me. Five minutes. You'll be back over here in five minutes. I'll be asleep in five minutes. Five. You know it, and I know it. I do really like the opening sequence, which is interesting. Like, it, it starts in a way that you do not expect oh, this movie to open. That's why it's so weird that it's the second movie in the series. It's a musical number. In like, Chinese. <laughs> like, it's so bizarre. And then, uh, like, like, and so it has Harrison Ford in a tuxedo. So he's much more of a James Bond kind of figure in this than we saw in the first film. And it feels like a very different, like a spy kind of movie. Like, it's in Shanghai. It's not in the kind of locations yeah. that we saw in the first film and that sequence i think is directed really really well like you can see spielberg's attention to just Mm -hmm. like different set pieces like there's a lot going on with her chasing a diamond and then it gets confused with some ice and meanwhile like indiana jones is like hiding behind this giant gong thing and, and it's just like really well 
staged. So I think you can feel that his like heart is in that sequence in a way that I feel like he feels a little bit checked out of a lot of the rest of the movie. I mean, it's still filmed very well, like like staged very well, but you don't feel his presence in this movie the way that you do in a lot of things where he's just so carefully thinking about everything. This movie kind of feels a little slapdash, like written and and directed a little bit. Yeah, like even just beyond the kind of inherently episodic nature of, you know, doing an homage to serials and stuff like this one in particular just feels really kind of choppy like that. And I do totally agree with you. It feels like there's the lack of that overriding hand, like the deus ex machina (laughs) above everything to like keep it all on the right mind shaft rails. There's just parts where I feel like the acting is not good. And I generally wouldn't say that about the other Indiana Jones movies. Like it's all like serviceable to like, you know, like you nailed it, but like them on the plane and it's going down and just, I feel like, I don't know what they're going for. Like, she's just like, Oh, <laughs> like the way she's like, act, <laughs> the plane is going to crash. And she's just like, Oh, <laughs> she's like irritated in the face of death. Like, yeah. Yes. Like, constantly. I can't even replicate it. Which, again, is basically the same sentiment she shows in every other scenario. But I'm like, how did you this? Like, clearly you're a brilliant director. Like, you directed her to be like that. Not to actually feel like there's any tension at all. But there's, like, a lot of scenes like that where I just, like, what is going on here? Was he sick that day with malaria or something? Like, why is this so (laughs) badly directed in parts? Like, because I agree with you, like, parts of that opening are great. And look, I'm going to give this movie a compliment. I think everything from the minecart chase to the bridge, I think is great. The bridge is an amazing set piece. Oh my God, is he nuts? (laughs) That's really good. Thank you. I've been saying it for years. I feel like the really gets better every time. The chase is an amazing set piece. Oh, it is. I think I was with you, Seth. We were watching it. And like they got into that minecart and I was like, let's go, baby. Oh, yeah. No, (laughs) hell yeah. I was like, here it comes. Yeah, good to go. It was a ride, man. And like every... Like, I love that bridge sequence. I love both those sequences, and they're one right after the other. And I think, like, that is the best section of this movie where I'm fully enjoying it. It's well choreographed. I feel like there's tension. I feel like it's working in those two sequences. Yeah, I mean, it sort of has the thing where it's a very long action sequence, and I'm sort of like, okay, I'm ready to move on to, you know, some story next. But I agree. I mean, less so than some of the scenes in the other movies. Can I describe an element of this movie that I think is great and holds up so well? What? Short round. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He's great. Honestly, I think he's the saving grace of this movie. And he's a whole other separate argument for rewatching this movie more often than the other ones. Like, it's such a perfect character and performance. Unlike other actors in this movie who I think are giving performances that are not near their best. I think he's a little hit or miss. I think he's very cute, but there are times when it feels like he's being like, I'm a cute kid in a movie. Like, I don't always believe his character totally. Or I I guess I don't always know who his character is. And that some of that goes to the writing. But I, I just, think like, that's the writing. He's I, Indiana I, Jones's best friend. Since when? <laughs> he says, you're my best friend, Indy. And that's cute, but, like, <laughs> where does he go, then? Why isn't he in Raiders? Because this is technically a prequel to Raiders, which is irritating, because right. why not just have it take place after? There's not really a good reason to have it take place 
a year before. Yeah, there's no reason. I had no idea. Is it because that you think that he ends up with Marion? So why would he be with Willie if he's with Marion? The reason that George Lucas said is that he thought that if it take, took place after, he would have to use Nazis as villains again, which I don't think it really makes sense. The year that before? That makes no sense. No, this is in India, so there's no reason to think yeah. that like yeah, Nazis the- would be in this temple. So this could happen anytime, you know? That's a weird explanation. That's so, that makes, again, makes no sense. I thought it was because of the love interest thing. Yeah, in that opening scene, we're introduced very briefly to <laughs> Indiana Jones's other best friend, I guess, a character <laughs> named Wuhan, who is... <laughs> He's so many best friends. He's just a friendly guy, okay? Like... <laughs> who, I believe he says, is his partner on many adventures, and then dies and isn't mentioned again. So it's, like, very weird that, like... One of Indiana Jones's best friends who's been around a while dies, and then, like, yeah, you know, no reaction to this. One of my big notes for this one was everyone who ever gets close to Indiana Jones (laughs) dies a horrible death, usually preceded by kidnapping. And then, yeah, Short Round is apparently also around all the time. And I just like they kind of like very briefly explain that I guess like Short Round was orphaned and like tried to rob him at one point but then they they never really go back to like what this relationship is like indiana jones is not a great surrogate father figure and also like if this is true like where is he in last crusade like it seems very weird to hinge so much on this kid in this movie where he does become kind of like the heart of the movie and feels like an integral part of indiana jones's life here but then like is never mentioned again and also i feel like a lot of the movie takes place from his perspective Like, not from Indiana Jones' perspective, but from his perspective. I agree. It just doesn't really make sense because what we need is the meeting scene between Indiana Jones and this little boy. Right, it would make sense if, like, his dad was the one who was killed in that opening scene. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? (laughs) He has to take care of this kid. Yeah, like, there's all kinds of opportunities for, like, a real, like, emotional story, like, some kind of arc. But instead, it's like, it starts and ends with them. They're just partners, but... Yeah. Also, like, it doesn't really make sense to have, like, the bring this kid around on all these adventures, because, like, like, the kid has some, like, he can do a little martial arts, but... It's not a great idea to have him around on all these things. No, and, like, I guess the reason they wanted a kid is maybe one, well, people like me, because I was a kid, and I was like, oh, there's somebody like me in the movie. I can relate. But then also because they had this whole, like, child slavery angle, so then that would get that kid in there as, like, to do plot things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from in, from working on the inside. Yeah, and again, parallel for me with the whole Nazi thing. These movies are depicting subject matter that has a material basis in our reality and in our history and is incredibly fucking dark and horrifying in and of itself. And this movie totally skips over everything real about it and makes it into this, like, very Disney-esque fantasy, like a jailbreak kind of situation. Yeah, it was this movie's tonal problems. <laughs> like, yeah, so many tonal problems. I just remember there was the triumphant Indiana Jones music in this cave of children who were kidnapped and enslaved. And I was like, just think about like Auschwitz and somebody like trying to free the Jews, and you're like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> these <laughs> like, are children, they are slaves. Like, it's just, you know, fill in the blank of any horrid scene of depravity, and then, bah, 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 here I am. I keep telling you, you listen me more, you live longer. Please let me die. 
I pray to Shiva, let me die. But I do not. Now, now the evil of Kali take me. How? They will make me drink the blood of the Kali. Then I'll fall into the black sleep of the Kalima. What is that? We become like them. We'll be alive, but like a nightmare. You drink blood, you not wake up from nightmare. It was so fucking weird. <laughs> like, that's why it's just like, how did this get made? <laughs> like, legitimately, like, what were they thinking? <laughs> well, again, kind of a devil's advocate argument. But I do like that they went for something really different with this. And that they were embracing, like, the spirit of the serials. The original idea for this character was that he could pop up in all kinds of adventures. And even, like, ghosts in a castle. Mm -hmm. Like, now we have this kind of cemented idea of Indiana Jones. Because we've seen, like, several movies with him. And he's kind of been, except for this movie, consistent. Like, but there is a universe where he could have just been in these kind of different genres and that would have been kind of cool I think if this character had been like if the third movie had also been wildly different I think we would just have this sense that oh Indiana Jones is just someone we kind of plug into these kind of different feeling movies and it, and it doesn't have to always feel like Raiders every time so that doesn't excuse everything that's like weird about this movie but I kind of like the attempt to just go in a wildly different direction and make it darker like it fits in with the theme of in the 80s we just really wanted to like fucking terrify children with their mm -hmm. family entertainment because there's all kinds of movies like The Never Ending Story or Return to Oz that are just way scarier than we think children's movies ought to be now and I don't actually think it's more violent than the first movie because the first movie also has like really pretty horrific stuff with like a face melting off and another head exploding so I think it's more invasive, like uh, what I said, like it's more invasive. Yeah, I would agree with that. It it's more body horror versus the first one is like, you know, yeah. bang and punch and whip. And also it's a lot less, it's a lot more subjective in Temple of Doom. Like you feel that that could be something that's happening to you. Whereas like with Raiders of the Lost Ark, you need to literally just be looking in the ark. And that's the only way that that could happen. I mean, there's a there's a thing to be said also because of the child. It's child abuse. You know right. what I mean? Like that's a lot darker than I don't know. And then you don't see anything the Nazis do. So, you know, it's just it's a darker subject matter, but it's handled zany. Right. Which I think makes it not scary because like we all watch it as kids and I don't think any of us were actually like bothered by I it. I was most bothered by the bug scenes. <laughs> yeah. And the eating. Yeah, this is a much scenes. ickier movie. This is a disgusting movie. This is before like, you know, CGI. I mean, a lot of the those bugs are really those bugs and they makes me my stomach turn. Yeah, there's a lot of creepy crawling in this movie. It's the movie that scared a generation of children off Indian food. Like, which is, like, ridiculous because Indian, a lot of Indian culture is vegetarian and they wouldn't be eating right. that stuff. So, is that scene racist? But, uh, you're not eating? I had bugs for lunch. <laughs> Give me your hat. Why? Because I'm going to puke in it. Oh. What they've said is that the joke was supposed to be that the Indian people knew that the white people would assume that they would 
eat something weird, so they pick the weirdest thing possible. That but that doesn't really come across. That so. does not come yeah, across. Yeah, that is not a thing that's in the writing or in the direction. They're or They're literally the eating that stuff. Right. That And that might have been a, a funny joke to include. But yeah, it didn't. It obviously didn't make it in. I think it's a bit facile to call it racist. It's definitely culturally ignorant, which, you know, does go along with the serial thing. Because again, it's it's based in just caricature it's based in like cartoons of what other cultures are like yeah. right and there are cultures that do eat things i had a teacher who ate monkey finger soup like right. that was a real not thing in india no not in india <laughs> but like also it's a weird temple where i feel like it has its own culture like we do see a real indian village and they eat something that like willie's not that into but it's not like mm-hmm. monkey brains mm-hmm. so i feel like this particular temple just kind of has its own culture like i don't really see it as representing india particularly and the sacrifice incorporated polynesian stuff like with the lowering into like a pit of lava like that's not an indian thing either so it's just mm-hmm. like right It's mashing up a bunch of cultures. And because they are a cult that obviously is doing their own thing in this, like, I don't think anyone thinks that's India's religion, (laughs) whatever they're doing here. So I don't know. I mean, it's obviously so cartoonish that I don't think it's really worth criticizing its accuracy. So I wanted to note something about one of the iconic things in this movie there's there's a lot of heart ripping that goes on. Mola Ram, who is the the big baddie of this movie ritualistically removes people's hearts while doing this like team chant with everyone else. <laughs> you know, I'm sure we'll include audio of that because the, the, what they chant is very, very classic iconic, but I noticed something this time, which is that he only takes out or tries to take out men's hearts in this movie. He never tries to take out Willie's heart. No, he just tries to burn her. And there's something about Mularan that seems a bit queer-coded Oh my. to me. We're going there. We're... I did not pick this up at all. It's inherently penetrative, the act of removing a man's heart, going into him and pulling out his very core. I did not get that reading. I don't know. I'm not full-throatedly <laughs> making the argument that he is queer, but it was always such an interesting and compelling image to me. And yeah, it stuck out to me that he only did his work on men. There's only like one woman. I guess he's just going to sacrifice But again, her. if anything, you know, if he was an equal opportunity enjoyer of, of hearts, then he would have ripped her too. She was there. Don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm confused about the whole mechanics of the heart ripping and the sacrifice because, like, what does he do with the heart after he rips I it out? What does happens? he do anything? Does he eat it? I like, think what's he it? eats it. I also think that remember later on, the kid with the voodoo doll pins Indy down, uh-huh. and they make him drink skull juice. And I think they had squeezed the heart out and juiced it into the skull, and that's part of what they were like force feeding Indy. Wait, so what does that do? Wait, he was really, like, hypnotized, right? Yeah, he was, like, hypnotized. By that heart juice. By the skull juice. Skull juice is from the heart. I think so. See, this is a little confusing. Yeah, the mechanics of the magic, I think, are not very detailed. Yeah, it was confusing why he was pulling out hearts, what he was doing with it, and then what that 
juice did besides i guess make you like a zombie that's pretty much what it was though yeah there there's a lot indiana jones falls under the spell of the thing but apparently like just burning him with the yeah, torch the burning him makes him okay and later also with the other kid yeah just... burning is healing in this movie <laughs> again like abusing kids is a necessity a fundamental necessity but then you have to also burn people Sorry if I missed this. What are the kids doing down there exactly? They're mining. mining they're like for mining what? for diamonds. They're there. mining for the other stones, I believe. I only okay, know this because I read that too. They're mining yeah. for the stones. Where do the other two stones go? Right? There's three? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think all these movies are very confusing in their like actual details of the stuff that they're looking for. And They're always like very MacGuffin-y about it. Very it's just like It's magic happened. Go along with it. But I want to know, like, what the stakes are, you know? I don't understand the stakes here besides I'm going to die. But, like, what are they, what is he going to do with my heart? Or, like, what's going to happen if he sacrifices me? Like, what well, happens Well, also, like, then? they don't even explain, like, what magic the stones themselves have. Yeah. I got really into, yeah. like, gemstones and rocks as a kid. And I think it was maybe partly because of this movie. But, like, I was really disappointed when I learned that none of the rocks I collected in real life would glow when I, like, touched <laughs> them to other rocks. And they wouldn't burn people, and they didn't do shit when I would pull out people's hearts. Like, what did the stones do? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. What did they do? I don't know. I simply don't know. Um, I will say this movie awakens something in me again. Uh, not just the opening scene, but also the scene where Harrison Ford has been turned bad. And he's about to get his heart ripped out. And, like, he's shirtless and glistening. Mm. I think that's one of my favorite indies. Body by Jake. <laughs> yeah, honestly, Body by Jake really does contextualize it. Bridge indie, where he's like all like ripped up and he's got like one sleeve missing. Tux indie. Tux indie is up there, but I think Bridge indie wins. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the irony is it's like again as as bad as this movie is in a lot of ways, there are some iconic indies in this. I did write in my notes, Harrison <laughs> is hot as fuck in that white tux. I, I mean, I, I also down. thought he was super hot in professor mode. Like I, that that worked for me. All the tweed and the glasses. Yeah, I did really like the bridge sequence in this. I, I think it is great. I think it does elevate the movie. It is interesting to me that so many of these sequences are apparently leftovers that they didn't do for the first one. Hello, lady. We going for white. Oh my god. Who made the Indiana Jones voodoo doll? Like between then and dinner was like 45 (laughs) minutes ago tops. Who made this voodoo doll? They've got a -a Build-A-Bear back there. (laughs) A Bill of Jones. Well, I want to talk about the person who wields the voodoo doll, the which king. is this little prince. He's dressed like a prince. Or is he a king? At the, or is at he a point? king? I don't know if he's, he's a Maharaja, king. I, I don't know if he's a king or a prince or both. Um, But he is like high key femme. Okay, he, I'm reading as, he is, as femme. He is very 
femme. Yeah. I think when I was little, I didn't understand if that was a, a little boy or girl because because he's very femme. Yeah. But I didn't understand that when I was little. Well, I just get confused because they have him at the dinner scene and he seems like a like he says something kind of wise, like he's uh-huh. gonna like, I won't allow that in my kingdom, but then he's evil, but then I guess he's under the thrall, but I'm just, yeah. I'm very confused by the whole mechanics of like, what's yeah. going on? Do the people in the palace know? Like, are, is this like a front for them, like trying to hide I, that this is happening? I assume, but like, why did they put an entryway in their bedroom that they put him in? <laughs> is I don't there, know. Does every bedroom have a secret doorway down to this dungeon? Child slavery dungeon. <laughs> yeah, sure. Becky and I were trying to figure out the mechanics of like, the the castle they're staying in and like does every rent is there just one suite that has the child mind access it was very strange it was very right to it and again in terms of the like overall real history that this is referencing i find it really interesting that this movie is taking place specifically in india which was a british colony and this movie kind of a little bit vaguely hints at and has like one british colonel in like that Pankot Palace sequence. Mm, right. But it isn't investigated at all, even though, like, the history of the colonial domination of India by Britain is so central to how we see India and determined the way that it's represented in movies, especially in classic Hollywood. And of course, Indiana's stealing artifacts in all these stories and travels. But in this whole series, he's stealing artifacts for good reasons. So that could have been an opportunity to, like, contrast that against, you know, the colonial invaders and occupiers and plunderers that came before could have been good could have been interesting but also is like i still am hung up on the first scene of this movie where he is now hunting artifacts for like chinese mafia or whoever those evil guys were yeah like a mercenary for hire basically I'm just so confused. Like, so is he like, is he altruistic or is he not? Like, is he trying to get things for museums or he's just being paid off to like find this stuff? It's kind of confusing. Like, I want that to be more clear, like, and then have the movie deal with that. I think it's trying to say that his past is kind of like he was dealing with a lot of bad guys, like raiding things and then eventually like kind of turned. Yeah. Turned a leaf over Mm -hmm. because I don't think he's a professor at in this movie like it doesn't seem like it unless he's like really stretching that unlimited pto yeah right like is he on unpaid leave what's going on there's no professor jones in this Mm -mm. one huh Hmm. small world dr jones too small for two of us this is the second time i've had to reclaim my property from you That belongs in a museum. So do you. So I think it's interesting for us to check in with Spielberg's career at this point versus the other points we've talked about in other episodes. Because we discussed his rise in our E.T. episode. He had a gigantic hit with Jaws in 75 and then another big hit with Close Encounters in 77. Kind of a swing and a miss with 1941 in 1979. But he bounced back with Raiders in 81 and E.T. in 82. Both were big hits financially, critically, and both were nominated for Best Picture. So obviously these movies all remained more or less beloved throughout the 80s. 80s, as we all eventually discovered them growing up. But Temple of Doom kind of marked a beginning of a downswing for Spielberg. It was a financial hit, but as we talked about, received really mixed reviews, including from us. <laughs> and then throughout the 80s, Spielberg kind of stepped away from blockbuster filmmaking and tried to make more serious films. So 
between Temple of Doom and the third Indiana Jones, there were 1985's The Color Purple, 1987's Empire of the Sun, and 1989's Always. None of which were really failures, although they were kind of like descending order of like how well yeah, they the were received. Yeah, The Color Purple was still like well It made a good and... amount of money and was nominated for a ton of Oscars, even though it's tied for most Oscar nominations without winning any of them. Hmm. But none of them made over $100 million, so they were definitely different from the opening phase of his career. So when Spielberg had first signed on to Raiders, he made a verbal promise to George Lucas that he would direct three films in the series. If he had not made that promise, I don't think he would have continued on to do the third movie, especially after the bad publicity he got from Temple of Doom. Around this time, he was considering directing Big, the Tom Hanks movie we covered Mm. in episode 114 which was written by his sister and Spielberg. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Who was never heard of again. Yeah. (laughs) Well, his decision not to direct that was not specifically because of Indiana Jones, but because he didn't want to steal his sister's thunder. Um, But there was a movie we've covered on the podcast that Spielberg had to turn down because of Indiana Jones. And that was Rain Man which he spent several months developing with Dustin Mm. Hoffman and Tom Cruise and was very disappointed to have to pass on that. But if he had done it, Indiana Jones would not be able to be released by the Memorial Day weekend Mm. date it set. Of course, Spielberg did take on The Last Crusade, which follows Indiana Jones' quest after the Holy Grail, a MacGuffin Spielberg did not like because it reminded him of Monty Python. (laughs) (laughs) Lucas insisted on it, and as in the previous film, Spielberg deferred to him on these story points. Spielberg did insist, however, on introducing a father character for Indiana Jones, so he wasn't just making the same film over and over again. Chris Columbus worked on an early draft that was deemed too comedic, with a scene of Indiana Jones riding a rhinoceros during a chase scene. Boy. Fuck. Christopher Columbus. (laughs) Every single Christopher Columbus of history. (laughs) It was a different Christopher Columbus who wrote the draft and discovered America, not the same person. Oh, I know. Screenwriter Jeffrey Bohm eventually wrote the winning draft, wanting to focus on getting to know the hero better because the first two films had not given a ton of information on who Indiana Jones is. For the role of the father, Spielberg immediately jumped to Sean Connery. Lucas did not like the idea because the character was supposed to be bookish and older, someone who was not an adventurer like his son. Connery was only 12 years older than Harrison Ford. (laughs) But Spielberg won this argument, thinking Connery's star persona would make Ford rise to the challenge and create a tension between the two. For the role of young Indiana Jones, the production team wanted to keep this quiet, so they held auditions for a role called Boy on Train, (laughs) which eventually went to River Phoenix, then the hottest young actor in the business who is fresh off an Oscar nomination for Running on Empty. Irish actress Alison Doody, who had recently played a Bond girl in A View to Kill, was chosen to play the latest Jones girl. Oh, she was Irish? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade opened in theaters May 24th, 1989. It kicked off a summer movie season that would include Ghostbusters 2, Lethal Weapon 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, When Harry Met Sally, and Batman. It stars Harrison Ford returning as Indiana, River Phoenix as the younger Indiana, Allison Duty as double-crossing Austrian professor Elsa Schneider, Denholm Elliott returning as Marcus Brody, John Reese davies returning as Sala, and Sean Connery as Henry Jones Sr. This movie takes place in 1938, a couple years after Raiders, following Indy's quest to find his missing father and the Holy Grail, a cup with mysterious healing powers. Let them bring me to your holy mountain in the place where you dwell, across the desert and through the mountain, to the canyon of the crescent moon, to the temple where the cup that... where the cup that holds the blood of Jesus Christ resides forever. The Holy Grail. 
Dr. Jones. The chalice used by Christ during the Last Supper. The cup that caught his blood at the crucifixion and was entrusted to Joseph of Arimathea. The Arthur legend. I've heard this bedtime story before. Eternal life, Dr. Jones. The gift of youth to whoever drinks from the grail. <laughs> now, that's a bedtime story I'd like to wake up to. An old man's dream. Every man's dream, including your father's, I believe. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars and said, When Raiders of the Lost Ark appeared, it defined a new energy level for adventure movies. But there was no way for Spielberg to top himself, and perhaps it was just as well that Last Crusade will indeed be Indy's last film. It would be too sad to see the series grow old and thin like the James mm. Bond movies. Mm. <laughs> no comment. Writing for the Washington Post... Hal Hinson's. Oh, <laughs> God damn you. Spielberg and his producing partner, George Lucas, have carried their series deeper. Deeper into the hooey. The final section, in which Indy must claim the grail and save his father's life, is imbued with a turgid pop mystical tone. It doesn't help that these scenes look as if they were lit with a lava lamp. The sense of momentousness and wonder they strain for doesn't come across, though. And not only is there a shortage of magic, there's a shortage of sense as well. Unfortunately, Hal Hinson's review really tainted the interest in the third Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> I see right through this ruse. I'm lying. Uh, it made 197 domestic, 277 international for a total of $474 million on a $48 million budget. Wow. It broke box office records for Memorial Day weekend, for grosses on a Saturday, for seven-day grosses. I broke a lot of records. It won the Oscar for Best Sound Effects Editing, losing two others for sound and score. So what do we think of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Does this movie belong in a museum? <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, I watched all these movies recently and formulated opinions and then reformulated different opinions. This time around, I felt like this felt like too much of a retread of Raiders that it kind of I ended up appreciating Temple of Doom more because it was doing something different and then appreciating this less because it wasn't doing anything different in the spirit of those serials. I do really like how they add both the young Indiana Jones and the father just to kind of round out the character a bit more. And I think this is the clearest portrait of Indiana Jones. And I think it's the one that's kind of endured. Like we talked about some inconsistencies with this character in the first couple of movies where we're not really sure like if he's kind of a, a cad or, you know, a benevolent guy. Like it, it's not super clear and, and maybe varies from scene to scene. I think this Indiana Jones is the one that has kind of risen above all of that in the public consciousness to kind of be this character who's a little bit roguish but mostly like a pretty good guy and there, there's not a lot of rough edges to him in this one even though he's still I guess maybe a little bit of a womanizer but it follows the same structure as Raiders in so many ways like even the chase scenes feel kind of similar in a lot of ways there's like another like long truck chase scene the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant feel kind of like similar things with sort of similarly mysterious powers that we never really get a handle on and feel kind of arbitrary for like what needs to happen here I think this feels a lot like modern sequels that we're even getting now. Like this almost feels like an Indiana Jones movie that would be made now because it's so reverent to the original. Like there are a lot of callbacks. Mm -hmm. There's like the opening scene that's like, oh, this is how he got his hat and how he got his whip. We learned how he got everything in the first sequence. <laughs> yeah. And so and, and describing the origins of things. So this 
movie, even though it was only eight years after the first one, already feels very reverent to the original. I think maybe to a fault a little bit. After the Temple of Doom, like it was just clear that everyone wanted to make sure that they went out with a movie that was a lot less controversial than that and that felt closer to what everyone had fallen in love with with the first film. I think it might have been interesting to go in a wildly different direction for like a third time and just make it, I don't know, like some kind of different kind of genre movie like they talked about doing an alien kind of movie, which they eventually kind of did with Crystal Skull. But if that had happened here, I think that it would be fun to just kind of show up with Indiana in all kinds of different historical places and and not be so adherent to like this kind of same formula that we did in the first film. I mean, I don't think third movies and trilogies are allowed to do anything different because it's supposed to be like a return home, ultimately. And a, it doesn't and a have to be. I don't know. To me, the approach to it felt a lot more warranted. And it definitely was intentional, though, in reaction against Temple of Doom and the, the negative flack that it got. And you can feel that. Looking back on it, I realized that even as a kid, I thought this movie was a cut above the others, especially in terms of the layers to the story. Chris, just like you, I really appreciated then and now like that it depicts young indiana jones and also that it you know casts a father role for him i especially appreciate not just the stuff about their prior relationship that it unearths in the movie i especially like how it plays them against each other in the present moment it really gives indiana jones a kind of dramatic foil of someone who's maybe not physically but mentally on his level you know and, who and sexually right it's it literally sexually and and also someone who isn't perpetually in awe of indy and i think that's a good again just kind of contrast to the the, the other supporting characters they've had in the movies. Again, in this movie, about at the 20-minute mark, you get, like, they lay out the entire central storyline of the rest of the movie. I really liked, though, how they, like, revealed Sean Connery's character. And, like, we've talked about in the other kind of cold open sequences, how they build suspense and don't immediately show all the cards, which I do think that any modern sequels would not do at all. Like, I think the technical quality of the storytelling here is a cut above. And I think it's a cut above at least Temple of Doom. I also think it's a, a more complex just dramatically complex story and more emotionally involving, at least for me, than the first movie was. I don't see the MacGuffin of this as far as the Holy Grail. Like, I don't see that as being nearly as vague as the Ark of the Covenant was. Like, in this, it's, like, very determined. If you drink from the Holy Grail, you have eternal life. But and do you? That That is, yes. The, and that is, biblic- like, biblically and also especially but in they the... they both con- drink from it, so now... It's like death becomes her. It's going to be no. the two of them forever. No, like just... literally, that's, <laughs> that is the thing. They're eternal but now. But Sean Connery dies. Yeah, and Crystal Skull. Yeah, he's dead. Well, that's in, that's in another problem for Crystal Skull. Right, that takes place <laughs> after this. But in the lore of the Holy Grail, which has been part of storytelling for hundreds and hundreds of years, it also goes back to Arthurian legend. And a lot of the iconography and imagery that they go with in this is not necessarily based on biblical stuff. It's based on King Arthur legends and so I also get why Spielberg was hesitant about it being compared to Monty Python. 
I do like the way that it's rendered in this. I like the the three trials that you have to go through to get to it. I appreciated that the mechanics of that were a bit less vague. I won't say that this is a perfect movie, but I think as far as Indiana Jones movies go, this is the closest to like a really, really good Spielberg movie, at least in the, the qualities that I find comprise a Spielberg movie. Like I, I do get some emotional feelings from this. I do get some kind of character arc things where like Indy comes to appreciate his father and appreciate the lessons that he learned from his father, but also comes to appreciate the ways that his father wasn't there for him. And I get more of that kind of dramatic stuff than I get from any of the of any of the other Indiana Jones movies by far. I do think this feels more like a Spielberg movie, kind of in in quotes, in the tone of it and just certain visuals. Yeah. So this was my favorite indie movie growing up. And I still wish I had that puzzle because it's still my favorite indie movie. I love it. I love this movie. I like it way more than any of the others, including Crystal Skull. It's just so fun. It's well choreographed. I love the character moments. I love young indie. I love the Paramount Mountain <laughs> that starts all of these. <laughs> I like that it's like always like fades into another kind of mountain. Yeah. It's like the opening crawl to Star Wars. Like you're like, I'm going to see an Indiana Jones movie. It's going to start up the Paramount Mountain. I just really like it. I love the ending with the cup and the you have chosen poorly. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, it's great. It really works for me. It's something I enjoyed when I was little. And I'm surprised that I still feel very fondly of this movie. Like, I just feel like it works for me as a little kid and as an adult. Like, I love the scene where he has to, like, take the step. And then you see, the like, oh, faith. it's actually the leap of faith. And you actually, like turn the camera and you can see that it's just like an optical illusion. I love it. I love Sean Connery in this. I have not seen much of Sean Connery in anything because I'm not a James Bond person. I can't tell you another movie that Sean Connery's really in, but I love him in this. I think he's just works so well with Harrison Ford. He's always pretty much like this. Yeah. This is his persona. Yeah. yeah I just, I, I love it. it. It just works for me. Dr. Jones. Yes. yes. Takes the books now. What, what book? book? You have the diary in your pocket. <laughs> you don't. Do you think my son would be that stupid that he would bring my diary all the way back here? <laughs> you didn't, did you? You didn't bring it, did you? Well, uh, you did. Look, can we discuss this later? I should have mailed it to the Marx brothers. Well, you take it easy. Take it easy? Why do you think I sent it home in the first place so it wouldn't fall into their hands? I came here to save you. Oh, yeah? And who's going to come to save you, Junior? I told you. Don't call me Junior. I have like nitpicky things like River Phoenix's hair is not 1912 hair. That is definitely like teen heartthrob hair in the 1980s. <laughs> oh no. See, I immediately, I bought that hairstyle. No, I, I wanted to highlight River Phoenix. This is the first moment that any other actor is portraying Indiana Jones. And mm -hmm. I think he like embodies. No, he does great. Him so well. And there is so much backstory and exposition about Indiana Jones that is crammed into that kind of cold open sequence. I know. I love it. I It, it could be cheesy. And I could understand if somebody was like, oh, but, but I think they pull I 
pulling it. off. And I think River <laughs> Phoenix in particular, like, carries that totally believably to me. Once that wrapped, I was like, oh, I'm ready for this. Like, I hadn't rewatched this in a long time. And like, as soon as that sequence unfolded, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, I love the cut from like, you lost today, kid, but it doesn't mean you have to like it. And then he puts the hat on him and then he does a cut to match cut to him. And as an adult, like getting beaten up. <laughs> yeah, it's just, and then it's like the same artifact that he lost that day. It just works for me. The circus train, like all those moments with the animals. Yeah, that was so it's, well it's choreographed. It's super fun, well choreographed, well acted. Nothing made me like roll my eyes. You know, I was never like, wait a minute. I, I really like all the modes of transportation used in this movie. <laughs> they are on every mode of transportation, including a blimp and a horse. And horse. And horse, <laughs> like everything. I felt like that was a really nice theme or a through line, but like they're, they're literally bouncing from one mode of transportation to the next yeah. like they do all of them yeah i mean like to me this movie in particular is kind of the platonic ideal of the like action adventure fantasy i feel like that opening sets it up as a much more family friendly movie like it feels almost like a kid's movie i think because it's starring like a younger guy like to me and that this whole movie feels much safer and just a little less daring and, and interesting than the other movies to me like this movie has most of the same problems as Raiders and just like and not the benefit of being the first of these movies to introduce anything. There are a couple things adding to the character that I think help it feel like it has a little bit more of an arc, but I still feel like the Holy Grail, I'm not really clear why the villains want it or what will happen if they get it or they'll live forever. <laughs> so what? And but they won't apparently like like well, that, you that... don't know that when you're watching the movie about Crystal Skull and them. No, but I feel like off. they mentioned that in the beginning, but then they never return to that idea later. Like later it heals him, but I don't, I, they don't like reckon with the fact like, oh, I guess I'm living forever I now. I do wish that they had mentioned something at the end that's like, I guess, right. oh God, I have to live with my dad for the rest of my life. I, you know, I like, thought they did have like one throwaway line. No. No? No. Okay. And I don't take it that they that that's actually true in the end. I feel like it turns out that it just that's, has healing powers. That is what the story of the Holy Grail is, like the seven or eight hundred year old like folktale. But the guy. But there's a lot of different legends that have been like scrapped together to create. Like, but what do you think that guy is at the end? He drank from it and he's living forever. That's what that guy. I is. would love to know more. That's that's my thing. Is like. Well, that's just what that, that is, guy is. They lay out and they lay out the story of who that guy is. And he's like the last surviving brother of the three brothers who were trusted with the grail and who had to safeguard it for a thousand years until the next night would show up. I knew you would come. My strength has left me. Who are you? The last of three brothers who swore an oath to find the grail and to guard it. 700 years ago. No time to wait. You're strangely dressed for a night. Not exactly. A night? What do you mean? I was chosen because I was the bravest, the most worthy. The honor was mine until another came to challenge me to single combat. I pass it. You who vanquished me. 
So he's not, he didn't drink from the grill? He did. To live forever? He did. That's what I'm but saying. But he dies. He did. But then he dies. Who? The knight. <laughs> the knight at the end. He doesn't die. Why is it, it's not a thousand years, forever the, the, is longer like, than a thousand stuff, years. The rocks like fall in and the, the, the temple like collapses or whatever. The fact that we're debating this <laughs> proves my point <laughs> that we need more information. Clear. No, I think it just proves the point that y'all maybe didn't know about like Arthurian era well, we biblical legends. we shouldn't have to be required to know it going into the movie. And these movies are all using real things that are then adapted for the movie. Like, you have to set your own rules with what this means in this movie. And a lot of them start with a legend that doesn't end up being exactly true. The first movie did the same thing, where it's like, they didn't think that opening it was going to melt a bunch of people, or else they wouldn't have done that. Well, and also they're deliberately unclear about, like, what the exact mechanics of it all are. I get what you're saying. But yeah, I mean, I think if if it's really like our two heroes are going to live forever, you need to acknowledge that. And I not, do agree with that. Yeah. I agree that they should have acknowledged it. And there could have been a funny joke about living with his dad and forever. And if you want to like make it a little bit more at stake, it's like someone is maybe like dying of, of something like either the villain or the dad, you know, it's like there could be like more personal stakes involved in this. Instead, it's just kind of chasing this thing that they don't actually need or want for any well, reason. At the he end, get, he's His dying. dad gets shot he and is. he needs to do that to but save But that's not life. why they're going to find this thing. They're trying to get it to keep it away from the Nazis. Exactly, yes. like the first one. I think his dad also had a personal thing like he was searching for this his whole life. So it is part of like, like I'm going to do this for my dad. Yeah, and, and where it starts is that his dad has disappeared on the search while himself on the search for the Holy Grail. So he's not trying to stop Nazis from the start of this movie. He's trying to find his dad. Like, that's why I think it's, that's why I think this movie is just better. Like, even if it is retreading in some general sense, the trajectory of the plot in the first one, it's doing that in a much different scale and with different stakes and like real emotional character stakes for me. I want to talk about something we have not talked about once in these three movies. That is John Williams' score. Oh, yeah. We should maybe talk about that. Is this maybe, like, the most iconic? Like I think it is. I was actually ranking them in my mind. I would say maybe Jaws is slightly more. But, but this is more to it than bottom. Yeah. I mean, very iconic still. I mean, there's Star Wars. but I, I think this is more. But I feel like this is more iconic. No? I think they're equally <laughs> iconic. And they're they both equally elevate the material that they're accompanying. Like, I don't think that these movies would have had nearly the same impact on audiences and same, like, lasting popularity if it weren't for John Williams' score. Here's what I'll say. I don't like it. What? Wow. I don't really like the Indiana Jones theme. What the fuck is wrong with <laughs> We don't like it? Well, I'm not asking you to listen to it, like, in your car. <laughs> It's but I wouldn't. I would oh listen God, to, like, Chris. Star Wars or <laughs> Jurassic Park, but not this. Wow. It works so well with, it works so with well. the imagery that you're watching. Like, it is... I'm sh- I'm shocked. That's crazy. I, I find that it kind of crazy an annoying theme. Ba, 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 ba. I mean, just even, even just saying that. Yeah, it annoys me. I feel like wow. you're having, like, a fruit and vegetable <laughs> level aversion to this score. It's a tomato. I mean, I get it. I Again, I would not play this in my car, just like, <laughs> It's not, like, listenable. It, like, it's, you know, it's but, like, you it, can't help but, like, be like, 
notice it. It, it, which is fine for like the end credits of the movie or whatever. But I like the other John Williams scores and I hmm. don't particularly like this one. But it's just such a good theme, like for this character and for. Yeah, I'm just going to move on from that because I'm <laughs> not going to understand that no matter how much we explore it. Harrison Ford, I think we need to give his due as one of the best comedic performers of his generation, at least as far as like the male action hero subcategory. He sells a lot of lines that could be cheesy. He sells so many lines. He and always I just understates think, it. Yeah, He's and I think, his, mumbly, yeah. I think his timing and also his physicality are so underrated as comedic elements in all of these movies. Again, I think he's one of those essential ingredients in this, much like his role in Star Wars, much like John Williams scores, where I think it's like the combination of all of these elements really makes these things a lot more even than what was on the page of their scripts. I like that this one has a different kind of female Jones girl, I guess you might as well just call them. Yeah, well, and that was very much a deliberate thing. They wanted him to have like a different love interest in every movie and Mm -hmm. be Bondian in that way. What do you think is going on here? Since I met you, I've nearly been incinerated, drowned, shot at, and chopped into fish bait. We're caught in the middle of something sinister here. My guess is Dad found out more than he was looking for. And until I'm sure, I'm going to continue to do things the way I think they should be done. How dare you kiss me? like fast women and i hate arrogant men because she's not really a i mean she is a nazi but she's doing she she's teamed up with the nazis because she wants the grail i do like that because she is getting her comeuppance at the end for pairing up with evil people and doing evil things even if it's for like a quote-unquote good reason that her greed gets the best of her and i i like that she has that moment like it's it's her own fault basically yeah her downfall yeah and the fact that she is evil but then like she's kind of conflicted she has a little bit of depth to her character she's not she doesn't just like turn evil and that's that and she's just like the villain i think it would have helped if she had had like a personal motivation like she was like dying of a disease or something and needed that like just so that someone had some kind of like personal stakes going into this quest because like her quest for it just feels a little random what do they call it like power and glory or if Fortune and Glory. Fortune and Glory glory is Temple of Doom, yeah. Fortune and Glory, kid. Sure. I also love the Zeppelin sequence. Oh, the blimp? Yeah, the Zeppelin when they're like, when they escape on the blimp and he does like a routine where he's like the ticket taker checking people's tickets Uh and throws the Nazi out and says, no ticket. No ticket. I love that he knows how to fly a plane, but doesn't know how to land because what pilot lessons teach you how to fly, but not how to land? (laughs) Why does he know how to do one and not the other? Yeah, I don't know about that. Did you guys recognize the Wilhelm scream in each of these movies? In every single one. And I noted it every time. And it was a new delight every time. Like the versatility of the Wilhelm scream is phenomenal. 
I also really liked uh, Indy and his father's conversation on the Zeppelin where, like, you can tell that Indiana really wants to talk to his dad and connect with him, but he literally can't think of anything to say. And then also, like, Pappy Jones' line, you left just when you were becoming interesting, was a fantastic line. Did you call him Pappy Jones? Yes. (laughs) I was like, who are you talking about? I did really love those performances in particular and, like, their chemistry as actors. Do I detect a rebuke? A regret. It's just the two of us, Dad. It was a lonely way to grow up. For you, too. If you'd been an ordinary, average father like the other guys' dads, you'd have understood that. Actually, I was a wonderful father. Did I ever tell you to eat up, go to bed, wash your ears, do your homework? No, I respected your privacy, and I taught you self-reliance. What you taught me was that I was less important to you than people who'd been dead for 500 years in another country. And I learned it so well that we've hardly spoken for 20 years. You left just when you were becoming interesting. Dad, how I'm here now. What do you want to talk about? Hmm? Um, And then really the only other note I had was like how this movie finally depicts the ultimate battle of horse versus tank. (laughs) The horse always wins. Of course, of course. Yeah, I just, I found this movie to be very fun. I love the ending with the thing about the dog. We learn how he got his name, riding off into the sunset. Yes. So is it just me? But when you were little, did you know that that place where they go at the end to get the grail is real? Like the outside of, it's in Jordan. It's a real fucking place. Is it one of the like ziggurats or something? It's in the ancient city of Petra. It can be reached by horse or camel. It's the Al-Kazna temple. Yeah. And it's real. And I didn't know that till I was an adult. And I was like, huh? <laughs> I think like somebody I knew went to Jordan and posted pictures and I was like, what? <laughs> they have the set from Indiana Jones there. I didn't know that was real. It's such a cool location. Yeah. I think this is a lot of the power of filmmaking, especially back then when there was no internet. You can't just like look up a slideshow of these things. You saw these things because they were in movies or maybe documentaries. They were in popular movies. And like, I think that a location like that is like unbelievable. Yeah, I admired how all of these movies took real things and did incorporate a lot of real archaeology into them. Even if they seem a little bit silly in the moment, you don't really take like the first temple in the in raiders that seriously but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research that goes into that and i'm sure there's a lot of accuracy even though obviously if they booby trapped stuff it Mm -hmm. certainly wasn't that intricate i don't know how you would ever get (laughs) a stone that round did they find it did they make it i don't know but yeah i mean i think all these movies do a really interesting job of incorporating history and real places and real cultures into a very usually zany kind of story. I mean, just writing these movies, I think, would be really difficult just because of the way that you'd have to explain these things and mm-hmm. like quickly and, and not always successfully. Like, we don't understand the mechanics really of any of these movies 100%. <laughs> yeah. But at least, you know, enough that, like, 
if you're not analyzing the movie, you probably don't think about it too much. For me, like this whole series, I feel like has such an important place in pop culture. And like we said, Raiders especially is revered as like one of the best action movies of all time. And I find it so interesting because I find that I enjoy these movies more if I take them less seriously. And I'm just like, look at them in the spirit that they were created as the serials, you know, as pure fun, but like not even in the way of like really dissecting the movies like the more slapdash you can accept that they are i think the more fun that they are just taking the ride yeah it's an adventurer named after a dog it's not that serious (laughs) and i also think it's interesting that spielberg and lucas were creating this based on the serials that they saw as a kid and by kind of a coincidence like they happened to make these movies at the dawn of vhs basically so that they could become a movie that like our generation would watch like over and over like on a saturday afternoon in the same kind of spirit and, and that became like kind of the serial, you know, we weren't watching them in chunks. We were maybe watching them, you know, one movie, one week, the next one, the next week or something like that. But just that that spirit carried on and that now we have nostalgia for this. We have no nostalgia for the serials. We, a lot of people mm-hmm. wouldn't really even know what those are. Right. But that that spirit has somehow stayed alive and that, that we look back at on this series the same way that like those people looked back on those serials with the same kind of sense of like oh that was a fun thing when we were kids like we don't take it that seriously like it was just adventure it was like it's what like a sort of Saturday matinee kind of was meant to be so I I find that interesting that these have just managed to carry on that tradition kind of by accident because they couldn't have known that like we would be able to watch these movies over and over again really the same way that they were able to go to the movies every week to see the same story over and over. I recommend watching all three for various different reasons. (laughs) I do too. I I still think they're better altogether than any of them would be individually. I like Raiders the best personally, I think still, even though he criticized that one a lot, but I still think like just because it was creating all these things. And I still like some of the rough edges more than I like the super polished last one. I like things about all three and especially this watch while I was like keeping in mind like the spirit that they were created in and that they weren't trying to like be super modern or, you know, really update some of the kind of outdated racism or sexism, especially in the second one. Like they they weren't trying to do that. They were just trying to like translate that stuff from the 30s and 40s directly to the 80s. I think watching it with those that spirit in mind made me like the whole series a little bit more and especially like Temple of Doom more and just appreciate the fact that all these movies feel a little bit different and there is a kind of a chaos to the um, continuity where it's like, oh, okay, apparently he has a best friend who's a kid. Now he doesn't like, (laughs) you know, none of them, like if you really look at the chronology of all these movies, it kind of doesn't totally add up. But if you accept it in that kind of serial sense, it doesn't matter because it's just supposed to be like every week you're checking in with a different kind of adventure. I came away from this still just having a lot of appreciation for like Indiana Jones as a mythic figure. And I totally agree with you that it's best taken in just as the whole trilogy, really. Like, the movies are different enough from each other, not necessarily always in the best ways, but but at least always a different ride. Like, it is a different ride every time, I think. And especially, like, just re-watching them so close in succession this time, I appreciated them the most as kind of that three-part 
cereal, basically. And yeah, I wonder, like you do, Chris, like how much of this is going to be changed for generations after us by the fact that there is no real association with physical media anymore. Like they're not putting DVDs or Blu-rays or whatever in Happy Meals at this point. Everything is moving toward temporarily renting or having access to watch something without owning a physical copy of it. And I wonder how nostalgia is going to be generated and what forms it's going to take for people who come up after us who didn't have that experience. Yeah, we had limited options. Like we owned a certain amount of movies and had access to just like a much smaller amount of movies. So we would watch things over and over again that maybe younger generations do, but they don't have to. They could watch something new every day. But they won't. <laughs> the one with kids. She wants to watch something. She will just watch it over and over yeah. and over and over. It doesn't matter that there are hundreds of thousands of things to watch. When she's obsessed with one thing, she just wants to watch that one thing. So The Last Crusade was not The Last Crusade for Indiana Jones. The character was revived in The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, airing from 92 to 96 on ABC, which was aimed more at kids and teens, in part to spotlight important historical figures and cultural events. It wasn't. I mean, I looked a, l- a little bit on YouTube. It was not... <laughs> not worth watching? <laughs> not worth I watched watching. some of it at the time, but it's not. it was not very good even at the time. No. I like the idea of it. It sounds really cool. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. Lucas came up with 70 whole episodes. Everyone was like basically like a different adventure in a different time and, you know, like culture. Only 31 of them actually ended up getting used before the series was canceled. But Sean Patrick Flannery took over for River Phoenix playing the younger Indiana Jones in the series. Also notable from the 90s is Temple of the Forbidden Eye, the attraction at Disneyland that... Oh, is that what it's called? It's just the Indiana Jones ride. Yeah. (laughs) That opened in 95. It was incredibly popular. At least at a time, it felt like the biggest draw to Disneyland for years. Like, it felt like the the one ride that, like, everyone wanted to go on that always had a huge line. It still has a huge line today. Yeah. It's a pretty good ride. It's good. It's like a roller coaster. And then in 2008, Harrison Ford returned to the role in the much-hyped Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, once again working from a story by Lucas and directed by Spielberg, set in the 50s instead of the 30s, co-starring Kate Blanchett and uh, Shia LaBeouf as a possible successor to the franchise. And also, thankfully, returned Kieran Allen as Marion to finally close that loop. Received mixed but mostly positive reviews from critics and was another gigantic hit. It received positive reviews from me upon seeing it and very negative reviews from me upon seeing it again. (laughs) I watched it again this morning and it went back up again because again in the spirit of these serials, I don't know. I think it's pretty fun. There's some things that aren't super great. Like I don't love where it ends (laughs) up, but I think it still has the same. The worst part of it, the worst part of it is the CGI. Like, it starts with a CGI gopher, and that was just not good. Um, Also, I thought the writing was terrible. Not good dialogue. I I think you were watching these films through rose-colored glasses, Chris. I think everyone watches these movies through (laughs) rose-colored glasses. That's fair. No, that's fair. So the buzz around that movie was Harrison Ford is kind of old. Can he still do this? In 2008. (laughs) Uh, We are now in 2023. God damn it, we're all old. (laughs) And we are doing this again with uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny coming out on June 30th. Uh, The first of these not directed by Steven Spielberg. This time it's directed by James Mangold. It already premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. It's a pretty mediocre reviews. 
So, some of them were like mixed. Yeah, mediocre. <laughs> some people liked it and some people didn't. Here was you the thing I noticed about the coverage of it was that the night of, like when it first initially happened, I heard only like good things that there was very positive audience response, etc. But then the day after, all of the headlines had changed to, oh, the standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival for this screening was only five minutes long. So that's bad news for the movie. And everyone thinks it's going to fail now. That's literally what I saw across but all Cannes, the trades. Cannes is a weird audience. It is insane. And it it's, wasn't even in contention. They're basically applauding Harrison Ford. You know? Right. But there was like a very deliberate attempt after the fact to paint it as having not gone well. That happens a lot at Cannes. It's like, it's always effusive praise. And then like, there's an inevitably sort of a like actually yeah and i feel like like half the time it's probably just people are tired of having clapped for 20 minutes the last time like yeah. you don't know and it's crazy it's insane to me that that is used as a barometer of any film's popularity or potential audience interest like it's the most elite crowd of people to watch a movie on you're getting Earth. like three claps out of me max no matter how much <laughs> i like the movie so <laughs> I, i'm not standing for 20 minutes to clap for anything no so you guys gonna see this movie are you interested not interested i am slightly interested i wouldn't have been because of crystal skull but the trailer looked kind of fun but i don't have high hopes and because the reviews are kind of middling i'll watch it on tv when it's streaming I'm going to watch it on a VHS tape that I buy from McDonald's. I'm going to go to McDonald's <laughs> locations until one of them will sell me a VHS copy of that movie. Good luck. Yeah, no, like Becky, I, I was excited by the trailer. The trailer looks fun, at least. But I don't really see movies in theaters right now. And I really don't think that that's enough to pull me to a theater. I think I will go to a theater. I think maybe the place that Indiana Jones has in our culture just has people expecting a lot because people love these movies. And again, like they're kind of goofy, you know, they're supposed to be silly adventures. So maybe maybe that's what it is. And that's maybe it's not that different from the, you know, the original movies. And people just want it to be something mm -hmm. that is a lot bigger than really any of these movies really is. I'll give it a chance. The reviews definitely have me worried because I'm not in love with a lot of blockbuster stuff these days. Like all this like nostalgia stuff, it gets a little old. <laughs> Our podcast aside, I'm a little tired of the <laughs> 80s and the 90s. Uh, hush you. <laughs> well, we were talking about this before we started recording, especially the way that the 80s and 90s gets regurgitated now in the form of sequels and reboots and re-prequels and de-sequels. De-sequels? <laughs> I don't know what all these Marvel movies are doing. There's a lot of movie making that's going on now for crass business decisions that are clearly only directed at like making a profit and keeping the intellectual property and the copyrights going. Which this kind of feels like. It does. I would say James Mangold has a pretty good batting average. Yes. What does he do? He did 310 to Yuma. He, he did, did Logan. Oh, I like Ford Logan. Ford versus Ferrari. He's done some really good movies. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think, is fun. Yeah, I love her. So at least like that could hopefully be a interesting female character hopefully we'll see all i'm saying is a better start with the paramount mountain i bet it will do that yeah i think that's in the bag yeah and that's all the paramount that we have time for in this episode of when we were young on our next episode it's not a film it's not a tv show it's not an album it's not a book it's a toy which toy all of the toys <laughs> <laughs> We are going to be looking back at some of the toys that we played with in the 80s and 90s. 
too many to list, but, you know, Transformers, Barbie, Rainbow Bright. Pound Puppy. G.I. Joe. And we're just going to be, you know, kind of talking about our memories of these toys, some uh, how the they were marketed, and what kinds of additional media were created out of them, for better or mostly for worse. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please follow us at www.yshow on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can bring you more episodes of the show. I've been Seth. I'm Becky. And I could have been your greatest adventure. <laughs> Shing lieben ya la ching bound ching tens of Anything goes Iwang ilu chu cha ku cha me ha ching su shu sha la fong yen Anything goes Wong kwang su sha sha eat and out ta bien ba we ba bien without Mong was on the da do zu je kwe nu kusha Good to was we fair a long till I don't want the hung to that song you didn't wear Anything goes